Hey y'all! Welcome to Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. I'm Abby Artemisia of The Wander School. Each episode, I bring you stories, tips, and tricks from foragers and wildcrafters around the world to empower you on your wild path. Please remember to practice safe foraging by being 100% positive of your identification before consuming anything wild. Happy listening! Come on, everyone, and gather around. Listen to the soothing in this sound. I'm here to tell you that medicine don't come from a pill, it grows in the ground. The medicine we need grows all around us. Hey, y'all, it's Abby, and this is episode four. I am super excited because today I'll be talking to my good old friend, Doug Crouch, from Trio Permaculture at Treasure Lake in Kentucky. Doug and I have known each other for years, and we love to collaborate and co-teach. We'll be doing that again on May 18th at his place in Kentucky, and we'll tell you more about that shortly. But right now, I want to introduce Doug. Hey, Doug. Good morning. Good morning, Abby. How are you? I'm doing pretty good on this rainy morning. That's good to hear. Yeah, it is a lovely spring morning here at my new digs in South Carolina. Also rainy, but finally gotten to get out and do some foraging and just foraged some black locust flowers last night. Do you all have some of those down at the lake? Yeah, I I saw your picture of that and I was um, quite amazed at Wow, they're already out because, yeah, we have at least two, maybe four weeks, depending on the weather, before we'll get black locust flowers. Right? Yeah, it's pretty amazing to me being in a new region and watching the difference, having come from North Carolina and then before that, Ohio. It's pretty cool to see the changes, and I keep a wildcrafting calendar So I keep note of what is blooming and what I forage when and where. And so it's really great to keep track of all of that and see one, how it changes in the same location, but then also how it changes from location to location. So yeah, I have been pretty amazed here to see things happening so soon. And so If you want to check that out, you can check out my Instagram and Facebook accounts at The Wander School, and I posted the recipe for the black locust fritters and then some pictures of some dandelion fritter, a recipe for that, and wild greens fritters from my book, The Herbal Handbook for Homesteaders, so y'all can all check that out. But uh, I want to talk a lot to Doug and because he's just so amazing and a wealth of knowledge and an international permaculture superstar. So (laughs) Doug and I joke about that. So just had to poke him a little bit. But 
Yeah, Doug, you have such a wealth of knowledge and such an amazing background and you do such cool things. So instead of me trying to describe all of that, I would love to hear you tell about your background a little bit and what you do now. Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, and just kind of had a normal suburban upbringing, um, but, you know, always found ways to connect with nature when I was young, including the place that I'm at today, Treasure Lake, which my grandparents bought in 1983, and they've run uh, several small businesses uh, their whole entire lives until they end it. I mean, it's still owned by the family, and I'm stewarding the 60-acre piece of land. And this piece of land really helped me to study ecology because as it was going through its evolution, a friend was like, hey, if you want to run this place one day, maybe you should study something that supports that. And he was actually going to do a program called Fish and Wildlife Management at Hawking College, which is in the Athens Hawking region of Southeast Ohio. And so I, I left my comfortable suburban existence and embarked into a whole new field of study and really, really just thrived with it once I got comfortable in the new social situation. And so studied fish and wildlife management for a couple of years there. And from there, I, I went out to the West Coast to study fisheries biology and figured out I didn't want to become a biologist. It was not hands-on enough. And that's when I got in contact with the permaculture movement in 2005 and studied that in Oregon and have been traveling the world, working on farms and studying further uh, ever since. And so Treasure Lake has always been a spot where I come back and you know, do work. Um, but my, my life had led me to five different continents, which was really great to be able to study ecology all around the world and see how different climates produce different plants and different foraging possibilities and different agricultural possibilities. Um, and seeing how agriculture and culture are so interlinked has been a big study uh, of mine throughout these years. And now I've moved back to Northern Kentucky full-time. I'm not so far from the Cincinnati airport in Northern Kentucky. And yeah, just advancing this, this project, this third generation of Crouches to be a part of it. Um, keeping going with stewarding our natural resources here. Cool. That is so awesome, Doug. And I... Don't know if this was true for you or not, but I know for me that I had a teacher when I was in middle school who was really instrumental. She taught an outdoor education class, which back in those days was pretty rare, <laughs> but she, looking back, was a huge mentor for me, and I didn't know it at the time or recognize it for what it was, but I think she had a lot to do with leading me toward my current path, education, nature education, and 
all the various things that I do. And I know that one of your professors at Hawking was someone who is near and dear to both of us, Rebecca Wood. And I was just wondering if maybe she influenced your path a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I would say there's two people that really influenced my path. One is uh, my, my auntie. She's been a teacher for 40 something years. She's retired and she's still teaching. And she told me my whole entire life that I would become a, a teacher. And so I am a really passionate educator. And I know that part of that path stems from her and seeing her dedication to the craft. And then, yeah, when I went to Hawking and studied with, you know, some really, really amazing professors, Rebecca Wood really stood out for me because she allowed the intuitive uh, side of my nature connection to really be accepted and flourish. Uh, where everything else was very technical. It was a two-year technical degree. So, of course, that was the angle that the professors were teaching from. But she really allowed for the connection part. And she's an incredible wealth of knowledge. So put those two things together, and that really uh, framed how I see the natural world and how I try to teach people to not only learn plants names and their medicinal uses or how to plant them agriculturally, but to really be able to connect to uh, essentially the spirit of the plant or its essence, if you don't like the word spirit. Yeah, just embrace both halves of our brains for that connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. You put that so well. It really just, it still amazes me that the blessing of having someone like you did, like Rebecca, as a teacher um, at the college level, and especially somewhere like Ohio, where, <laughs> you know, most people don't know that area, so they don't know that it's pretty liberal, but, you know, most people think of Ohio as pretty conservative, and to have a professor who is also a yoga teacher and into nature connection so much, which I think when it really comes down to it, most professors in that field are uh, very connected to nature, but they wouldn't talk about that in class. You know, they, their love of nature is what brought them into that field, but they may not consciously connect it or speak about it in class because it's not widely accepted in the academic world. So especially, you know, a little bit further back when we went to school, which was not that long ago. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's becoming luckily more accepted in academia now, but it still has a long way to go. So it's so yeah. great to me that you got that experience. Do you want to go ahead and tell me about a little bit more about Treasure Lake? And I know that you're going through a big transition there. And recently you told me you were creating a new term for what you were doing. And I thought that was really interesting. So do you want to tell us more about what's going on currently for you? Yeah. So Treasure Lake it was bought by my grandparents in, in 1983. 
and on the property is a pay fishing lake and a bar. And my grandparents ran that business just as many had before. This The original dam was built in 1947 by the Army Corps of Engineers. And it's historically, since 1947, been a recreation area. And they ran it similar uh, in style. And over the years, as I started to study and pass through here on my global travels, I began to cultivate the forest. And we decided this past year to shut down the fishing lake and campground and the bar other than a couple of nights a week, which is mainly just community gatherings, um, to focus more and more on agriculture and um, other biodiversity initiatives. So also at Treasure Lake, there's a acre and a half market garden run by one of my friends, Annie Woods. She's super dedicated to the local foods movement and grows amazing vegetables. And yeah, my new term that I'm calling my work here and hope to promote a movement around, it's called active forest enhancement. Mm. So a lot of people who are trying to steward their forests uh, for biodiversity will, you know, maybe describe the term to others as non-timber forest product development. (laughs) while I love that movement it starts with the word non yeah and that's just language is such a magical thing Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I was reflecting upon that and also my work goes beyond just non-timber forest products so active forest enhancement has a lot to do with looking at the non-native species as a resource for things like building soil or slowing down the water, trapping sediment in the streams. Um, And I cycle back the invasives to give space and time to our native understory shrubs, mostly is what I'm focused on. So right now the red buds are in bloom, the dogwoods are in bloom, and those are two that I really try to highlight but my main focus, of course, is on the pawpaw and the spice bush. Yay! They're, they're just incredible plants. They have so much magic in, in both of them. The way they flower, their leaves, their products that they provide. Um, the habitat for very specific wildlife, uh, mainly in the insect world, I'm referring to in this moment. Um, but yeah, just trying to give them the space um, and you know, not using chemicals in the forest, not worried about getting rid of it, like the honeysuckle and multiflora rose is, is mainly what I'm working with, uh, although privet is coming in quite strong right now as well. But just seeing them as a, a woody resource to, to, to cycle energy. And um, yeah, it's really really fun work and we have done some logging on the land when my grandfather was alive we did cut down 25 trees and yes it did 
bring $30,000 worth of sales. And interestingly enough, with those canopy breaks, the pawpaw and the spice bush has actually expanded its range here. And we have 40 acres of forest. And I would say if I added all the pawpaw patches up, we might be looking at five acres worth of pawpaws, maybe 10. I have no idea, but they're, they're continuing to expand. And even yesterday, I'm, I was trying a new technique. So instead of germinating and planting the pawpaw seeds in pots and then planting those out, I thought, well, they've got this sensitive taproot. Let me just run around to some areas that already have a couple of pawpaw trees. And that's pattern-wise of where I'm seeing them thrive the most um, here at the lake. Let me just put seeds directly in the ground that have been germinated beforehand. Mm. So that was another exciting, just, you know, experimentation, new thing, and can be something I research and follow for the next 10 years. Yeah, that's so great. So I think I just so admire your work. I just have to tell the story of our walk last year. Doug and I led a walk and at his place and we were scouting out the lake to figure out where we were going to lead the walk and Doug, how long have you been managing that land for pawpaws? Really since 2001 when I first learned what a pawpaw tree was. Right. So since 2001, and uh, so it had been 17 years. But Doug, being the international permaculture superstar that he is, <laughs> has traveled to teach a lot. And that... I know for you is changing now with your commitment to being there at the lake. And so we decided to take a walk to see how close the pawpaws were to being ripe to see because we were really hoping that we'd have some ripe pawpaws to harvest for our class and for people to taste because a lot of people have never tasted a pawpaw. And we found the first ripe pawpaws and that was the first year that you had been there for the pawpaw harvest and we got to as is my tradition to eat the first pawpaw in the woods where you find it and so i got to have that experience with doug in his pawpaw patch that he's been managing for 17 years. And that was the first time he had gotten to be there for the harvest. And it was even more magical for me to have that experience with you. So I will never forget that. And uh, maybe we can post some pictures of that. <laughs> that was pretty mm -hmm. amazing. You know, it's crazy. Pawpaws are the only species in their whole family that is you know native to all like the whole eastern united states and most other species in that family are tropical and it looks like a tropical plant with its big broad leaves pawpaws are the largest native north american fruit and were spread throughout the woods by native americans 
And yet a lot of folks have either never heard of pawpaws or never tried pawpaws. So I was hoping, Doug, that you could tell us a little bit more about what pawpaws are, maybe how they taste, and also because you've done so much propagation, I would love to hear about your experience with that and how they grow. Yeah, like you said, pawpaws um, are the northernmost of this particular family, the Anoniaceae family. And I've planted or eaten Anonas um, in various parts of the world, whether it's the tropical soursop or it's the more Mediterranean cherimoya. Um, yeah, it's a, a plant family that people love to eat the fruit throughout the world. Yet, yeah, here in the eastern half of the states and pawpaw grows all the way up into Ontario as well. I have some friends propagating some by seed right now up there as well. But pawpaw, you know, you'll see it listed as kind of an edge species and people think uh, it grows a lot by water. Um, but really the way to think about pawpaw is it's a canopy break species because it does have its tropical sort of roots. Um, I see it all the time in the forest. I was just in one patch yesterday showing some friends who had never been to the property um, before a large cherry tree starting to die out. The pileated woodpecker comes in, puts enormous holes in the trunk of the cherry tree. It falls over and voila, then the pawpaws just start to grow at an incredible rate and then flower uh, very quickly. And, you know, I will never prove this scientifically. To me, there must be some sort of mycelium network letting the pawpaw know that a tree is weakening. Like they seem to pop up even before the tree dies, which in our forests around here, of course, is quite dramatic with the, with the die out of the ash right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by water, you think, oh, that's, a, that's where they normally like to grow, like on a stream bank. Well, actually, waterways right now, especially in the modern day with the incredible amount of rainfall and flooding that we're having, having is a place where canopy breaks happen often because the flooding will bring down trees. So then pawpaws like, ooh, going to sprout up. And pawpaws, you know, are consumed by many uh, different creatures wildlife-wise. So you have a vector already for propagation in the forest. So that's mainly raccoons and actually coyotes. Coyotes like to eat the fruit. They'll swallow the seed and then they poop it out. We don't have black bear around here in northern Kentucky yet. It's been a couple of supposed sightings, but due to our urban density around here, I don't know that that's actually true or going to happen. Mm. Yeah, the wildlife itself is a vector. So when you talk about sustainable foraging or ethical foraging, I won't take all the pawpaws out of the forest because 
I want to feed the wildlife. Again, my degree is in fish and wildlife. So giving more pawpaws space and time is not just about feeding myself and people, but also about feeding wildlife. But then I do take the fruit and I select the fruit for the biggest or particular flavors. So I have one patch on Campsite 3 that are really abundant in terms of the amount of fruit that they produce, but it's small fruit, but it very much has a mango flavor. Mm. Whereas the patch that me and Abby ate the first fruit of last year that she was describing earlier, it's a much bigger fruit and has more of that classical custard taste, custard apple taste that the family is named after. And then I'm also, I've had the, the experience of planting two pawpaws at my parents' house in 2008. I bought that from a nursery in Southeast Ohio and I planted them and built a swale in front of them, permaculture style to deal with the runoff from the roof and the lawn and blah, blah, blah. And they have grown to be, you know, very healthy and productive trees. And I can see that this might actually even become a cultivar uh, because those trees that I planted at my parents are seedlings of grafted varieties. So now I'm working with the second generation of that, of seedlings of seedlings of grafted varieties, um, which is pretty exciting. So I take the pawpaw seeds out of the fruit, eat the fruit, or process it in some way, uh, clean the seeds on a, uh, on a sieve uh, that I use for natural building normally, um, and just wash all the fruit pulp off of them and am not afraid to kind of rub it against the metal of this sieve as well. And then I put that in wet sand in the refrigerator and we have uh, extremely sandy soils and spots here at the lake. So free sand there and put that in big gallon jars that I buy from my, my friends at Fab Ferments. Um, I reuse the, the jars for that stick them in the fridge, and then in the springtime, take those out and put them into trays and really load the tray up. Not like cell trays, but just an open flat. And I have heating pads underneath those uh, seed trays and really try to amp up the soil temperature. And I just use like these plastic totes, you know, are quite common for people to store stuff in. I use the clear ones and make those as like little greenhouses that fit perfectly over a flat. And I'll have the heating pad on and on a sunny day in the spring, I'll take those outside mm. and uh, use it as a little mini greenhouse. That way I can turn the electric off as well because the heating pad, of course, is um, utilizing electric. And make sure that the flats never dry out. Mm. and then. After a couple of weeks, I'll start to dig around in the soil and I will see the pawpaw seed opening or starting to put out a little rootlet. And from there, that's where I transplant them into uh, pots. Or like I said yesterday, I just ran around and planted them in the field. Cool. 
So to recap, you're taking the seeds and then you're getting the fruit off, right? Yeah. And then from there, they're going into a tray. They're going into uh, wet sand in the fridge. Wet sand in the fridge, right. Okay, so, yeah, two things that I wanted to point out for people who may not be super familiar with propagation is, one, that probably the most important thing is that the seeds remain wet the whole time because I've had people talk to me, and luckily I got the experience of propagating pawpaw seeds when I was in college in Ohio at Miami University and had a great professor where I got to do that, you know, people will come to me and say, hey, I tried to grow all these pawpaw seeds and none of them germinated. And usually the first question I ask them is, well, did your seeds dry out? And they're like, oh yeah, I totally dried those seeds. So, you know, a lot of people don't know that they have to stay wet And then what you're talking about, Doug, is stratification. So by putting them in the fridge, you're simulating winter for those seeds. So for someone who may not, um, I mean, most of us have a fridge, but like say you don't have room in your fridge or you don't have um, a way to expose your seeds to heat, it, what what kind of propagation techniques would you recommend for someone that would be as simple as possible with no energy input? I would just say in the fall after you harvest the the fruit, just go ahead and start to dig holes directly in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're really looking to pot them up, you pretty much have to use some measure of cold to emulate what winter would be. But of course you can do that straight away. You could also, I've never tried this, uh, put the seeds in a pot over winter and see if they do, you know, germinate the next year. Um, the key is to, yeah, make sure they, they stay wet because at least up here in Northern Kentucky, we do experience very dry air uh, over the winter. Yeah. Make sure that you water them from time to time or they're exposed to the rain and snow. Okay. Um, I use the, the technology of things like heating pads and these totes just to help speed it up. And actually when I'm seeing this, particular spring um, with the addition of the heating pads is I would say 99% germination rate. Wow. That's amazing. I could probably say a hundred, but yeah, I should, let's just keep it at 99. (laughs) That is so awesome. Thank you for that information. I think that will be really helpful for people. I, well, before we go on, is there anything else you wanted to add to that that you think would be super important for people to know if they're trying to plant their own, grow their own pawpaws? Yeah, they, they prefer longer, uh, deeper pots because mm-hmm. they do have uh, a very deep taproot. So keep that in mind with your pot selection. 
the longer, deeper pots are more expensive for sure. And I'm, you know, honestly just using like a piecemeal of pots of being a, a pot recycler <laughs> uh, as I move to more of the semi-commercial scale of pawpaw propagation. I will be, you know, buying the the deeper, longer tree tube pots uh, to ensure, you know, that they set this deep taproot. But that's even why I I really like the idea of being like the uh, short film some of you may have seen, The Man Who Planted Trees. It's a fictional film made by the French from a French book. And it's a really wonderful story of an elderly gentleman spending his lonely later years in life just running around planting acorns directly in the ground. And yeah, so I, I, I show that film in all of my permaculture design courses and people really love it. And so that's, that's what's inspired me to just go around and plant them directly in the ground. And you don't have to worry about the uh, taproot being disturbed. Wow, that's so cool. What, what's the name of that film again? The Man Who Planted Trees. You can okay. watch it on YouTube. Great. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. People want to find that. Wow, that's so cool. I love it. So being starting out in permaculture and teaching permaculture, I know that guilds are a part of that. And I'm wondering what kind of plants you usually see growing near pawpaws and what you would recommend to folks to plant around pawpaws and the specific habitat that, that they seem to thrive in. Yeah. I mean, in the wild, you will find just about everything uh, growing near them because they really are a canopy break species. And yesterday I was in a valley situation of pawpaws that I had planted a couple of years ago that I got from uh, Andy Shiwi, who's also an, another amazing permaculture slash forager. Um, I was looking for some different genetics and he's out in Indiana, so bought some plants from him. But I saw tons of jewelweed in that particular situation during my observation. But again, in a valley, whereas another patch that I went to yesterday, there was lots of black cohosh growing mm. uh, underneath the pawpaw trees, which I was actually super stoked to see because I had never seen that grow in the wild here other than the ones that I had planted. Uh, when I do it out in more of like an edible landscaping context, for example, like at my parents, I have plants like astragalus, false wow. indigo, comfrey, um, Eliagnus, the gumi, the cultivated one, not the Russian olive, mm -hmm. planted around it. And also plants like echinacea. So just trying to use different plant families to, yeah, form that little mini cultivated ecology that is a guild. Uh, but it's really just a plant palette that you get to choose from. That's, that's the fun of guilds is you are the artist, you're painting the landscape, both with shaping the earth, little earthwork for um, pawpaws is always nice, whether that's an individual tree planting terrace 
or planting them below a swale because they do like water. And then you take your palette and you put more brush strokes on the landscape through those varying plant families like the asters, like the legumes, the nitrogen fixers, like the umbels. Um, the bronze fennel is one I really like to plant as well from the umbel family. Um, and then the mint family. So I'll do bee balm quite a lot as well. Cool. Well, maybe you can send me some of those guild plants that you'd recommend and I can put it in the show notes. Yeah, and I can, I can send you a link to an article that I've written about guilds. So I have an online book. Trio Permaculture is, is the brand I operate on under. And I have an online book, the same uh, URL, but just triopermacultureedu.com. Mm -hmm. And it's modeled after the class uh, that the course that I teach, the permaculture design course. And guilds is one of the topics that we cover. And it has 130 articles on the website itself. And it has more to come. And we're going to soon be offering more platforms under Trio Permaculture EDU for continuing education in topics like permaculture, but also branching into depth on topics like foraging and wildcrafting. Yes, I'm so excited about that. And also, thank you for making all of that information available and accessible to people. It is amazing. There is, it's just such a huge base of information. So please go check that out. And Doug's website will be in the show notes. So make sure that you check that and the link um, to the article on guilds that he was talking about. I'll put that in the notes as well. One other little thing, we're starting to run out of time, but I thought was important to mention, and maybe you could touch on for just a second, was a little bit more about how pawpaws grow because they're clonal and they send roots out underground. And so that's the other thing some people will ask me sometimes is, hey, I wandered upon these pawpaws in the woods or I planted a pawpaw and you know I'm not finding any fruit. What's going on? And so maybe you could talk about that, Doug, and about how pawpaws are pollinated and what we need in order to get fruit if we're if we're propagating pawpaws. Yeah, I would love to to talk about that because that is a big part of my program of active forest enhancement. So pawpaws are definitely light sensitive. That's one of the main things that you're going to look for uh, in terms of are they fruity, fruiting or not. And how can I make sure that they are? So the first thing I do is cut down the non-natives like bush honeysuckle, multiflora, rose, and privet in my case. Uh, so they get the light to shoot up higher. I've got 30 foot tall bush honeysuckle in some spots. Um, it's old growth bush honeysuckle, I like to call it. And then sometimes I'll even take out a box elder, a sugar maple, a hackberry, that's only maybe like four to six inches in diameter uh, to try and get the pawpaw from the shrub understory into the sub canopy. 
And they do take about five, seven, eight years to flower for the first time. And the flowers are pollinated by flies. So if you actually smell a pawpaw flower, you really have to put your nose into it. It's not like this smell is going to be wafting in the air. But it <laughs> smell like uh, rotting meat, like right. carrion, to attract this very, how do we put it, carnal way of pollinating. It's an interesting symbiosis between the fly and the pawpaw. Um, and if you haven't seen a pawpaw flower before, they are freaking amazing. They have these, they actually have three petals and three sepals, which is the outer ring um, behind the petals. But the sepals and the petals of pawpaws both look the same. They're both this beautiful dark maroon color. Again, I think that's probably because it's sort of the color of blood in these pollinators eat dead things a lot of times so they can see that color but um when the petals and the sepals are indistinguishable they're called tepals so if you want a fun botany word of the day tepals so they have six tepals and uh it's this sort of bell-shaped flower that hangs upside down with these beautiful maroon petals and sepals so we'll uh, try and get some pictures of that uh, but it is um, in the blog because I'll put pictures of Doug with his bio and some other pictures of pawpaws in the blog so if you want to see some pictures of pawpaw flowers and fruit we'll we'll add that too so sorry go ahead so Pawpaws, they need two genetically different um, plants to produce fruit for the pollination. So, yeah, because pawpaws do spread through their rhizomes, you may see a big patch that's 20, 30, 40, 50 square feet in size, but it's, it can be just one plant. So keep that in mind. And that's why I'm introducing different genetics in various areas because, yeah, like where I was planting yesterday, I've seen that there's eight pulpo plants and they're flowering, but they're not producing fruit because it's actually just one plant that is spread underneath the ground through the rhizomes. Mm-hmm. It has plenty of light. It's on, a, on the edge of the lake and there's basically an overstory of oak but it's even closer to the lake so that the light is not the reason it's just that there's not the genetic diversity out there yet for the pollination and one of the things that i actually do um, to make sure my patches stay productive is I actually cut down pawpaws, and it's one of the hardest things to do. But because they spread through these rhizomes, you will get plant spacing at one foot, two foot, three feet, and it's just too crowded. So not only taking out the invasives and even some of the native stuff, I try to get my pawpaw spacing to five, eight, ten feet so that they have a full crown capacity. So if you look up the spacing of what they recommend, if you were going to plant them in, say, an edible landscaping 
type of situation or even an orchard, they'll say 12 to 15 feet and some of the bigger cultivars, even 20 feet. Wow. But when you go into the forest, you get much more dense spacing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll do this cutting to open up yeah, more lights and more canopy. And then that will uh, bring on more fruit. That's great. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's it's just great to me that you seem to have learned most of what you know about growing pawpaws from doing it, not from reading books, but from your years of experience of doing it and watching what works. So you have the experience to back it up. And that is super valuable for all of us. So, yeah, so you were saying it's not like some people might think you don't need, pawpaws are not male and female and you don't need one of each to cross-pollinate. You just need separate plants so you have different DNA to cross-pollinate. Thinking of that, how many plants would you recommend would be the minimum if somebody wants to start propagating pawpaws? What would be the least number that they should start with? Yeah, two is fine. At my parents' suburban uh, context, I have two seedlings of cultivars. Hmm. And there is a wild patch across the street, but that's maybe like 300 yards away, whether or not the flies are able to travel that distance with the pollen, I have no idea. But just these two trees absolutely pump fruit. Whatever you can do to attract flies at this early time of the year that they're flowering is is always warranted. So you have reports of people hanging roadkill or things like that in their pawpaw patches or even rotating animals into pawpaw patches like goats. Of course, you have the famous site of integration acres in Southeast Ohio that combines goats and pawpaws. And I just think pawpaws are such an amazing plant for people to plant because we have so much deer pressure in our modern day, yet deer and goats don't eat pawpaw plants. So what a wonderful plant to be able to just plant and, and be able to just mulch and build your guild and hopefully get it some shade in its early years. But beyond that, yeah, you don't have to put big cages and things on um, them. I, I did have um, the deer step on my pawpaw plants at my parents' house, but, you know, <laughs> it damaged a branch or two and then um, yeah. they were able to grow quite, quite big. But oh. one, one little thing I, I want to share Uh, about pawpaws is we are not the only ones planting them around the world. So I've actually planted pawpaws in what we call a climate analog, uh, which is a a spot in the world that has a very similar climate. So I used to teach in Slovakia, which is essentially the same climate as being in the mountains of West Virginia, which of course pawpaws do quite well there. And uh, we planted you know, all these same cultivars like sunflower and mango and Davis uh, in Slovakia. And I've seen them grow in central France at a plant breeding station. And a friend of mine just bought two pawpaws in Holland and uh, just planted 
them at her parents' house. So yeah, you know, we collect plants from all over the world and yeah, they love planting things like service berry and pawpaw in this same climate analog in, in different parts of the world. Very cool. Yeah, I feel like between the two of us, we could definitely talk all day about pawpaws. We could. Uh, yeah, I did. You know, I just love the image because I've heard stories. I've never seen it, but heard stories of people hanging, rotting meat up in the trees to attract the flies. And I just love the visual of that. Yeah, I did want to point out, you know, that just so people know, if you're not familiar with pawpaws, the skin and the seeds are poisonous for us, for humans to eat. So you don't want to eat those, but they are doing some pretty cool research on pawpaws as a medicinal. And so I know back in the day that the seeds were ground and worked with as a treatment for lice. And so that's kind of interesting. But I also have heard that recently they've been doing research on pawpaws for cancer. So it would be really interesting to check that out and do some more research. And I know that um, you're in Kentucky. I know Kentucky State is doing a lot of research on pawpaws and different cultivars and trying to make them more shelf stable to make more work and financial stability for some of the Appalachian folks who people may or may not know there's a lot of poverty in the rural areas of Appalachia. So that's kind of a cool thing. And I'll, I'll put a link to Kentucky State too. So folks can check that out. But real quick, Doug, can you just touch on what the ideal habitat would be for pawpaw propagation? Yeah, I, I just think anywhere in the eastern half of the United States or a similar climate around the world. But yeah, they're going to they're gonna grow and thrive uh, pretty much anywhere that we get ample rainfall all throughout the year. I've heard people trying to plant them in places like California. And I also planted some in Portugal just for the fun of it because I saw it at the nursery, even though we were growing its cousin, the Cherry Moya. Um, but too dry and not enough chill hours. So Paul Paul actually, like certain varieties of apples, uh, wants that cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're, you know, propagating them more in a cultivation way, yeah, the getting the soil temperature up, uh, which is why I'm using the heating pads and the little greenhouses. My friends in Ontario said they have them in a plastic bag in you know wet soil on their window seal to use that as like a little roots type of way to um, increase soil temperature because the the seed is going to open up much quicker through um, a high heat situation in the soil so yeah just make sure they stay wet get that soil temperature up and once they germinate it and the leaves come out, they do not like to be in full sun straight away, which is actually, um, you know, why I mentioned earlier, maybe, maybe they know when a tree is about to die out. So they'll germinate and then boom, come. 
And I find that if you cut it, they will grow, you know, kind of the field of dreams way of words. <laughs> if you cut the invasives, the non-natives, then what I find is a lot of germination of pawpaw and spicebush uh, afterwards. And yeah, those plants grow back. So you have to cycle through and come and cut it back again. And you have to cycle back and cut it again. Otherwise, you're supporting a large multinational corporation by applying glyphosate, which just doesn't make sense to perpetuate native plants, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's great. Wow. So much information. Thank you so much, Doug. That is so, so great. You're going to give me a recipe, right? To put on the blog. Yeah. Basically, once you harvest the pawpaws and you start processing them, it seems like freezing them is the best way to really uh, preserve their, their life because they do go off quite quickly. So making a mash out of the fruit and then combining that with some sort of milk, whether that's, you know, cow or goat or almond milk or coconut milk, but also I'm going to experiment with hickory milk. And then, yeah, I learned about that last year at Plant Walkers and Mm I'm going to try that this year. And then um, adding a little bit of a sugar resource uh, just to sweeten it up a little bit more, take some of the the acidity off. And we use maple syrup that we, you know, tap the trees and process into syrup here on the property as well, um, which gives it a really unique flavor. And the more we can produce our own sugars, the better off the planet is going to be because so many of the world's acres are dedicated to sugar production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, I cannot wait to see that recipe and we got to try it last year at our walk that we did and it was, everyone loved it. So I'm excited for that. Real quick, can you talk about our event coming up on May 18th, Planting Abundance? Yeah. So, you know, me and Abby have uh, quite a good rapport um, of teaching together So I'm really looking forward to this opportunity to do it again. Um, It's been about five years now that we've been working together on education. Wow, that's amazing. First one was Pollination Fest 2014. Yeah, yeah, so this time we're going to get deeper into the forest um, than we ever have before and look at some you know, different diverse habitats here, talking about foraging and wildcrafting, plant identification, and seeing how uh, basically past land use does play such a part in what plants are there. So we'll be doing the assessment part in a holistic way that gives you clues on how to read the landscape. And plants are such an indicator of that, whether it's what plants are growing or what they look like or the age of the plants themselves. And then at the end of the day, we're gonna put in some elderberries and other native medicinal plants into a zone that is in between campsite three and four here 
that I've been slowly uh, developing since that same time of 2014 pollination fest when we harvested black locust for the stage and that created a canopy break in this uh, ridge that's in a valley it's a quite unique landform and so we're just going to get dirty and and plant in more biodiversity and build off what is already there yes cannot wait and yeah it's going to be so yeah, and we'll be doing a lot of plant walking on the land there at Treasure Lake and talk about, I'll be talking to about the edible and medicinal aspects of the plants that we see. And we'll also get to do some foraging, which will be super fun, and then take those plants that we harvest and make them into something delicious for our lunch. So you know, people often ask me like, okay, well now I know this plant, but what do I do with it? So this is your opportunity to see it and not only see it, but do it. So be hands on. And we have early bird registration up until May 1st. So go ahead and get registered for that and we'll see you in Kentucky. And um, yeah, so Doug, I'm gonna post your website. Do you have anything else coming up that you want people to know about or any other services that you offer? Not really. In the moment, I'm, I'm just quite focused on the development here at, at Treasure Lake. And we're in the process of building up the infrastructure to be able to host people for you know, longer, more extended educational experience experiences and uh, volunteering or apprenticing for a longer time but you know Rome wasn't built in a day so <laughs> that will be coming uh, before too long and that's really the the next step is um, you know when you're managing 60 acres including a, what I call a 40 acre food forest you know it takes a lot of hands to do so and it provides a really great learning opportunity. If you're interested in this eco-forestry or, if, you know, active forest management, I would say this is one of the premier sites that you're going to see because it has been happening for nearly 20 years. And we have a really great community of people in the area uh, doing the same sort of work. And that's been probably the best part of my journey of moving back and becoming more full-time here is not only, you know, experiencing things like harvesting the first pawpaws of the year with you last year, but just building really great relationships with the people around me. So we've got a nice little scene developing here in Petersburg and just hope you guys plug in, you know, with this upcoming course or other classes um, or apprenticeships in the future. Yeah, I love it. Well, Doug, thank you so much and keep doing the good work. What if people want to get a hold of you is the best way through your website? Yeah, best ways through through the website um, has a contact form. And yeah, just drop me a line and contact me that way. Okay, and will you say the website one more time? TrioPermaculture.com Great. Cool. Well, Doug, thanks again. It has been such a joy to have you on and get to talk to you about pawpaws. 
Well, thank you, Abby. And yeah, I really appreciate the, the space to do so. As you can tell, I'm quite passionate about it. So I'm glad y'all are listening. Yep. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in Kentucky in a few weeks. Yeah, it won't be long. Yep. All right. Well, y'all, thanks for listening. And check the show notes for all those links that I mentioned, including a link to our Planting Abundance event coming up at Doug's Land Treasure Lake in just a few weeks. And that early bird registration deadline is May 1st. But of course, you can register after that. And we hope to see you there. And we hope that you will plant some pawpaws. Thanks for listening and happy foraging. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. Don't forget to check the show notes for all of the links from today's episode. Thanks so much to Tina and her pony for the use of their beautiful song, Medicine. I love hearing from all of you, so please leave me your comments. And if you like what you've heard, please rate and review this podcast and share with folks you know. You can keep learning and following my adventures on thewanderschool.com and the Wanderschool Facebook and Instagram pages. Happy wandering, foraging, and wildcrafting. Come on, everyone, and gather around. Listen to the soothing in this sound. I'm here to tell you that medicine don't come from a pill, it grows in the ground. The medicine we need grows all around.